0: Hello, and welcome back to What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Robner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping on Wednesday this week, around noon on October 4th. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So let's get to it. Today, we are joined by Joanne Kennan of Politico. Hey, Julie. Stephanie Armour of The Wall Street Journal. Hi. And Margot Sanger-Katz in The New York Times. Hello. Today, we also have our first group interview. We'll be talking with Congressman John Larson, a Democrat of Connecticut. He's got a new bill that would let people over age 50 buy into the Medicare program. But first, the news of the week. So as of October 1st, which was Sunday, the Republican efforts to repeal and replace Obamacare with a simple majority disappeared with the end of the fiscal year.
1: Happy Fiscal New Year, everyone.
0: Yes. (laughs) But so did the authorization for the Children's Health Insurance Program, CHIP. Congress is working to renew CHIP. The Senate Finance Committee literally just finished its markup approving the bill. But it is not a done deal yet, is it? It's a
2: mess. It's more of a mess than I thought it would be at this point. At the end of the day... Um, I mean there the House and the Senate bills do have commonalities,
0: the end of the day literally or the end of the day in general, <laughs> the end
2: of the metaphorical day when we get done with this. Um, the so so there are areas of the Senate is bipartisan. The House is not bipartisan, although there are things in there that Democrats like and things Democrats don't like. Um, every time we've talked about Chip, we've always said it's going to be a partisan fight that probably ends up in a bipartisan place. I still think that. I think that the bi- the the partisan beginnings in the House, because not the, the CHIP policy, the children's health policy people agree on. It's all the other stuff they want to go along with it. So they have to figure out what to peel off and, and how to, to sort of get back focused on CHIP and community health centers. Both of those are have bipartisan support. The community health centers are running out of money. They're not shutting down today. CHIP, in spite of what you uh, might have seen on Twitter or social media, it did not end at the stroke of midnight. Nine million children were not thrown off of their health. But there is a funding problem in the states. It does have to be resolved, and it is not totally smooth sailing. It's the, you know, by, the other thing is, of the states that are running out of money sooner rather than later, Utah is one that's really facing a fiscal and crunch. And why is Utah important? Utah is, happens to be important <laughs> because Senator Orrin Hatch, who is A, one of the co-founders of CHIP, B, a senator from Utah, and C, the... Uh, Chairman of the Senate Finance Committee which is in charge of this thing. It's his state that's in trouble. He cares about CHIP. That, you know, adds some momentum to it, potentially. But it's it's not going to be an overnight kumbaya.
0: Isn't isn't one of the reasons that chip is more bipartisan in the Senate than it is in the House? Because the Senate hasn't bothered to talk about how to pay for it yet, right? I'm, I'm looking around the table, people are nodding.
1: Yes, <laughs> right. I think I, right. I, I do yes. think that's that's the hang up, you know. Uh chip Costs a little more each year than it cost the years before. And, and they want to
2: do a five year fix, not a one or two year fix. They have to come up with five years of payments. So
1: the, the math gets a little bit hard because they need to come up with other policies, other parts of, that either ways they can raise money or ways that they can cut other parts of the budget. And that is in almost every policy fight where the really tough going is.
0: Yeah. And, and they and they're dragging Medicare into this in the House. They want to they want to raise they want to cut money from Medicare to pay for CHIP. So that that that's... that's
2: in the Senate belt. I mean, we're getting into entitlement season fighting. And, and yep. you know, it has been that is a, a evergreen in Washington. I mean, they have been fighting about entitlement since entitlements were born. Um, it more intense some parts of the year than others. We're into a budget season now. Plus, you know, they've been so focused on the Affordable Care Act
1: repeal, now they can get back to good old-fashioned entitlement bashing. But
2: But,
3: I
1: also think there are two other things that are making the entitlement cut potential more heated. And one is that the Republicans just put out their budget for 2018, fiscal year 2018, (laughs) and it includes you know at least on the books in the senate you know quite a lot of cuts to both medicare and medicaid so i think there's a view like these things fit together and that the you know democrats feel like they have to be really protective of those programs and i think also it really comes on the heels of this big democratic mobilization to protect the affordable care act and a lot of that was geared around trying to protect medicaid from the cuts that would have come from the republican bills and so i just feel like uh, everyone is really on high alert and And so even some small changes that might, in a less heated climate, be agreeable to both sides are uh, resulting in some pretty heated uh, debate.
3: And the big concern, too, is there's a lot of talk of Perhaps this not passing until December, which I, the states that I've spoken to are very concerned about. They're already st- starting to have to make kind of plans, contingency plans. Are they going to move children if potentially if they don't have the funding into the exchange for a short period of time? Um, when do they have to send out notices? The cost of doing all of this? Um is not something that's reimbursed. So for the states, kind of this not knowing when it will actually happen um, is causing a lot of pressure and confusion and concern
0: like that that seems to be a chorus of of, of stakeholders not knowing what Congress yeah. is going to do about yeah. something important and expensive. Um, but or... and they had hoped for a
3: clean bill and yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but also, I mean, they are doing the markup. I mean, this is different than what we've just been through. This is regular order, and this stuff is being fought out in public, and there's debate, and there's votes on all the changes, and all of us who pay attention to this can actually see what's going to go in the bill before it comes up for a final vote. So let's 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 <laughs> give the process credit for happening. Right. There are
2: hearings today in yeah. both the Senate, both the energy and commerce and in the Senate uh, Finance Committee. Uh, both of them are moving forward. They're moving forward quickly. The deadline, I mean, they blew the deadline. It's not the first time Congress versus Blue the Dillon, though it may not be the first time they got this late
0: on Chip. Mm. No, sure. they did in no. 2007. The bill got vetoed and they didn't know Right, no because well, I, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> and then they had an abortion fight not, on it last not two Chip's years ago. This not first rodeo. Yeah, they had,
2: they had the abortion language fight two years ago. Um, So the... And, and but I mean some things that are tough. They've they have like the Democrats and on this in the in the Senate there's this extra funding because it's called the bump. Um, that the Democrats wanted to keep the Republicans wanted to get rid of it on the Senate side. There was a bipartisan agreement to keep it for two years and then slowly phase it out. And um, so there is a bipartisan framework that we can see. Yeah, you know it it at the end when they pass it, it's probably not going to look that different from where we start, but they're gonna have
0: to go through you know another one of those congressional long and winding (laughs) roads. And they should have been doing this six months ago. All right, I think that's enough on chip. The other big news obviously since we last gathered, Tom Price has resigned from as Secretary of HHS in the face of some amazing reporting by your colleagues at Politico Joanne. So who's gonna replace him?
2: Well we don't know yet. (laughs) There's long list of names and if any of us try to recite all the names we heard, we will forget a few of them. But I've called this um, It's one half – these early lists, it's one half Washington Parlor game, and it's one half Trial Balloon. So we've heard a few governors or former governors. We've heard Bobby Jindal, who I do believe is in the mix. We've heard Rick Scott, who's probably – going to just stick to his plans to the run for Senate, right, governor, mm-hmm. and he wants to run for Senate next year, and I think his Republican colleagues want to see him do that. Um, we've heard there are two current administration, of three current administration officials who are who are uh, being looked at. One is Seema Verma, who is the uh, administrator of, of CMS. She's in charge of Medicare, Medicaid, and the ACA implementation, and that's a big job within HHS. Um, Scott Gottlieb, who's the commissioner of the FDA, we're hearing his name. Um, and David Shulkin, who's the secretary of the Veterans Administration yep. in charge of the effort to. and he's quite transparent about his efforts to try to clean things up at the VA.
0: But he's also had private plane problems. He had yes. a private plane problem. So so, well, he had also... a wife
2: travel vacation problem. Um, but Trump likes him a lot, and he was confirmed unanimously by the Senate, and that uh was 99. In he, he served in the Obama administration. He served in the Obama administration, and my colleague. I mean, we had we published a list of like 10. I mean, Rick Santorum. It's a long yeah. list. Yeah. I mean, Dr. Also, Oz. we heard, although I would be. List. I don't expect that. <laughs> One. I heard Ben Carson. One. Ben Carson, right. There's right. also
1: a long list of people who have been floated who have come out publicly this week and said, no, thank no. you. And I've actually sort of been amused by that, that there are, I actually think this will be a somewhat difficult job to fill. Uh, you know, I don't think that the Trump administration treated Tom Price particularly well. Um, I think it's an incredibly political job at a difficult time. Well, the president you know,
0: publicly the- threatened to fire him at the Boy Scout yeah. <laughs> you know and all also- so, I mean, which is president... probably
2: a first. I don't think any president has gone <laughs> to a Boy Scout jamboree and threatened
1: to fire a cabinet member before. Maybe I've missed one historically in 1832 or something. But I just I think this would be an incredibly difficult time to be the Secretary of HHS. You have an administration and a party that is quite committed to repealing the Affordable Care Act. They kind of fell on their face on that. It's not clear whether there's going to be another opportunity. And there is so much political heat right now on the Affordable Care Act, which is of course only one part of the Health and Human Services portfolio, but it's this really politically difficult part. Anyone who's going to come up for this job is going to have quite a boisterous uh, Senate confirmation hearing, even if they can get through. And I do think in general we've seen it's not just Price, but a lot of cabinet secretaries uh, have had a difficult time in the Trump administration. I think it's a very hard administration in which to serve at that level. And when we talk about some of these other people who are already in the administration, like Scott Gottlieb or Shulkin, they actually seem like people who have been able to keep their heads down and do their jobs. They haven't faced a lot of interference from above. And I don't know if it would be attractive to move into this very high-profile, highly politicized job. Yeah, but some
2: people who say they're not interested in we also know that doesn't necessarily mean they're not interested. Right. So
3: you, you know, part, part of the Washington parlor game. Right. But Stephanie. you do have to risk whoever steps into it. Um, if they get on the wrong side of President Trump, they could be, you know, see a very – publicly on the hot seat. So there's a lot of difficulty. I totally agree with Margot says. It's like, it's also kind of who wants this job right now. Well, the and, job security doesn't appear to be right, very good. Right. And in the trajectory cabinet. of HHS is already very clear in terms of what's happening. Um, so it, it, it's not like someone's going to necessarily come in and have a whole new vision, I don't believe. Um, it's sort of, are they able to follow some of the marching orders that are coming?
0: yeah to to that end, I think the other names that we were seeing floated are people who have experience in the Department of Health and Human Services before, but may not be you know household names the the Tevi Troys and the Alex yep. azars and the you know people who have who've sort of been in the trenches but could presumably run the department because they've been in in leadership positions but not necessarily out on the you know the the morning show circuit right. But, all right well uh that that That's the HHS secretary, who for whom we will have a name hopefully soon. Well, um, it might not be soon. I mean,
2: they're yeah. voting on the deputy today yeah. in the Senate.
0: So, so he can take over. There
2: could be an acting, and it could be for a while. Because, yeah. Right. I think so, too. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, it, but the president has gone, Has we've all watched him publicly attack a number of his cabinet members, members, but actually Tom Price is the first one to go, other than General Kelly, who switched to becoming chief of staff. So the other ones, you know, notably Jeff Sessions, are still in their jobs. And t- Tillerson. Right, mm-hmm. it's, it's yeah, right, person, Right, I mean, they right they so
0: It's not who exact- may or may not have called <laughs> the president a moron.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, but I mean, prices. There's been a huge amount of upheaval people in the White House staff. I mean, total total up people there. But this was the first cabinet member to leave.
0: All right. Well, fair point. Um, any news on the the on again, off again bipartisan talks in the Senate? The, the the Senator Lamar Alexander, Patty Murray, hoping to come to to a deal on a really, really, really small individual market stabilization bill. What do so we know? they
1: they keep making these small peeps that suggest that they are continuing to work. And uh, Senator Alexander came out, I think, yesterday and said publicly that the current deal would include two years of funding for these cost sharing reduction subsidies to insurance companies uh, that have been a big part of. This debate, he had initially said he wanted only one year, but I think we still don't have a great sense of exactly what's in the package and whether the leadership is interested in moving forward on it once the negotiators finish their. Some jobs. of the
2: leaders have, on the Senate side, have actually, after the last repeal bill fell apart, where they clearly preferred repeal to stabilization. I mean, Senator Cornyn has come out and said, you know, some encouraging things. So they're not. They're not. I don't see a. Any kind of sabotage effort, I don't see them, you know, saying everybody get in line and do this. But I think if you know if Murray and Alexander come up with a deal, I think you could see them try to push it ahead in the Senate with uncertain outcome. The House is um, a bigger, much bigger question mark. But um, I mean, yes, it's a narrow bill, but on the other hand. A bipartisan bill on Obamacare, by definition, is not a narrow bill. It's
0: it's a, it's a sea change. <laughs> it it is a re- would be a remarkable thing if they can pull right. it off. And
3: I do think there's some frustration going on, too, because I think that there was a hope that they could reach a deal a little bit sooner. Um, Marco Rubio and, and some others have raised some concerns about the process, which I think has led the Democrats to wonder, well, is leadership going to potentially put the kibosh on this or or, or kind of right. be against it? So I I would say that it's it's still their democrats are optimistic it's still mo- moving forward but how it's going to come out and and what leadership's going to do with it, I think is still a huge question. President Donald Trump has said that he would not pass a bill or not sign a bill that helped shore up the market. Um, and considering the executive actions that are looming, I, I think it's it's promising and that it's the first real bipartisan steps. But how far it's actually going to get is just a huge question. and they've already missed their deadline for the cost sharing reduction, so there's not that huge sense of urgency anymore either. Yeah. Right.
2: But the other thing is, I mean, we, we spent a lot of time a couple of last, the last few weeks, we were all focused on the, this last-ditch effort to repeal, which was the Cassidy-Graham bill, which died. And, you know, they're going to try to revive it one way or another. We'll deal with that later, but or in future weeks if they make an effort. Next year. Um, <laughs> but, but no, the important thing is that bill had two purposes, right? One was a last-ditch to get an Obamacare repeal through. The other was clearly to derail Maria and Alexander, who, yes. who had a lot more momentum a couple and of weeks ago. And it did ago. succeed at the and latter. It totally yeah, it did. it did totally kibosh them for a while. They are trying to pick up the pieces and move ahead. I have not heard... There's some technical talks going on about state flexibility and waivers, and I have not heard that they have fallen apart. I've heard that... No. no. I didn't check yesterday, but early in the week, people were still talking. I don't know if they're... I mean, they're certainly not... Dashing ahead? Are they continuing to inch ahead, which is, yeah, no, there's definitely, they're definitely still talking. So, so
0: we're going ahead without this bill into open enrollment, which, which uh, starts, God, in less than a month. Um, And we know that the administration has cut money for outreach. It's cut money for navigators who help people sign up. um, And into the breach steps a bunch of former Obama administration (laughs) officials saying, well, we're going to try and, you know, and do what the administration isn't doing to help people sign up. Any, any, any chance that any of this can work?
1: I think they have... From from what I can tell so far, they have relatively limited money. So uh what they've signed there's a bunch of former Obama administration officials who have launched this group. They have managed to sign on a bunch of big celebrities as kind of their spokespeople who presumably could get a little bit more press and attention for the effort. And they are people who've been in the trenches and done this before. They probably have smart ideas about how best to target advertisement, how best to network with the people out on the ground. But you know, the advertising budget was uh, cut from $100 million to $10 million. Uh This group is not going to be able to raise $90 million. Andy Slavitt's Open not going to go on between two ferns? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Andy Slavitt's going to go on between two ferns. But I think this is going to be a small effort that's going to try to fill some of the hole, but it is not going to be a big effort that is going to completely replace what has, has been gone. And, and And they face not just a financial challenge, but also they time. lack access to they lack time. I mean, open enrollment is quite soon. And they also lack access to a lot of the data that uh, CMS has. You know, in the past, a lot of their outreach efforts have been motivated by knowing Who's gone to the website and looked before? Who's signed up in the past? Who needs to renew? And the Trump administration says that they will continue to do some email outreach and some other targeted outreach to people who are in the market currently. But I think this outside effort may be hampered by the lack of access to the kind of information that could allow you to be really strategic on a small budget.
2: And there were two aspects of what the administration, the current administration, cut. One is the actual the, the messaging, the advertising, that kind of outreach. But they also totally slashed the uh, navigator enrollment assistance. The people who sat down and helped people actually figure out how to sign up, what plan was right for them, et cetera, et cetera. That that hand-holding. Um, it is hard to see this group. It's it, you know this group includes the person who did who headed a lot of the messaging, Josh. So. Um, you know they know how to they they can leverage social media. They may be able to do some paid paid advertising. They'll they'll know how to get some of the word out, but it's really hard to see them coming anywhere near close to that that holding You know they they're trying to do revive some of it on a volunteer basis or whatever money they can raise, but not the extensive and and the enrollment period is half
3: the length of last year. Yeah, no, I agree. Its effectiveness may be difficult, um, but I do think one thing is that is really fascinating is just seeing these the former. Obama officials kind of coming together and doing this basically, many of them kind of on their own time. And you also have this grassroots movement, the Indivisible, indivisible Group that is trying to, you know, you look at their Facebook site, they've actually put together banners and, and handouts per each state. I mean, it's, it's really just fascinating to kind of watch this continue to be a base that is is trying to do whatever it, it can to... Um, maintain the Affordable Care Act against what they feel is this onslaught. It's a very fascinating dynamic to watch. How effective it will be with open enrollment, I, I really don't know, and I think it's going to be a tough open enrollment this year.
0: Well, in the meantime, the pre- we are waiting for the president to uh, to issue an executive order, or at least so we are told there will be an executive order. Um, it's not inc- entirely clear what that executive order might do on health care or what he could do legally, but what are we hearing from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue?
3: Definitely, We are uh, hearing, at least from my sources, we're definitely hearing that something is in the works, um, that it could possibly come sooner rather than later. But you're right, there's some confusion over what it could actually do. This focus seems to be on association health plans at this point. Um, it possibly could include some other elements that um, were not mentioned when um, President Trump first talked about this executive order. So it potentially could be broader. But Um, I think it's very confusing right now because it's not exactly clear what it would do. It's not exactly clear if the um, legal ability to do this is there. And um, it it also is really confusing because at one hand, the president is talking about working with Democrats on something bipartisan. Yet a lot of the actions that are going on within HHS and potentially this order um, do just the opposite in terms of undermining the ACA.
2: I mean, if there's any teeth in this order,
3: if and when it comes out, I mean, it could, when we walk out of the studio,
2: we could find out it just came out. Right. And right. the other thing is that this, you know, the, President Trump's idea of this week can really be metaphorical, right? It could, it can, yeah. this week could be, who knows? When it's like it your is. end of the day. Yes. Um, so this week could be, you know, Whoever you know, we don't know when it's actually coming. However, you know, we often joke about you know healthcare being healthcare journalism being a full employment, lifelong job security. Healthcare lawyers have the same job security. If if this uh, executive order comes out, if it really changes the state regulation and the regulation of healthcare and health insurance, uh, you know, I give it eight seconds before someone sues.
1: Yeah. I, I, so I just want to point out a really um, striking irony in this particular effort. So we just had the Graham Cassidy bill, which. You know, it it failed to garner the votes that it needed. It didn't actually get a vote. Uh, but the the animating idea of the Graham Cassidy bill was the problem with health care in America and under Obamacare is that the federal government has too much authority and states are not able to be innovative and be flexible, respond to their local conditions, be more frugal. And that what we need to do is take away this federal apparatus for regulation. Take away the federal direct funding and instead give money to states and say, states, like, we trust you to do a better job. Regulate yourself. uh, Use the money as you see fit. Develop innovative and and different and creative systems. What these measures that are being contemplated by the Trump administration now would do is almost exactly the opposite of that. They would take authority away from state regulators who wish to manage their own insurance products and insurance uh, markets. And would instead allow uh, people to exit their state regulatory scheme and go into a federal system, whether it's these association health plans that would allow groups of people and small businesses to be governed under the ERISA law, which is a federal labor law, or if it was this uh, across state lines idea that President Trump has long talked about that would essentially allow insurance companies to be headquartered in whatever state they want and then sell elsewhere, that the effect of either of these policies would be to allow – to prevent state regulators from actually manage – and state legislators from actually managing their own markets and would instead be a sort of federal takeover of health insurance. And, of course – it is a federal deregulation in a lot of ways. The reason why it's attractive and the thing it has in common with the Graham Cassidy bill is that there will probably be fewer rules about what the insurance looked like. But I, I just, I just do think it's important to note this irony that you know there's sort of an ends and means confusion here. Con- consistency in healthcare has never been a
0: hallmark. <laughs> yeah. States' rights are good when they, when they, when you want them, and federal is better when you want that. Right.
3: But I do hear that you know the White House is talking to the Department of Labor. Um, And that it is quite possible that the executive order that comes out may be sort of squishy and then left up to regulation to take place. Um, So there's so much going on. There's so much uncertainty about how this will play out. And um, that's confusing at this time for a lot of people. No more for us to talk about.
0: So we're pleased to welcome to the podcast Congressman John Larson. He represents Connecticut's 1st District and sits on the House Ways and Means Committee, one of the two main health committees in the House. Welcome, Congressman. Thank you for joining us.
4: Great to be with you, Julie.
0: So can you start by telling us a little bit about your Medicare buy-in bill?
4: Well, yes. uh, The bill was introduced by uh, uh, Brian Higgins, Joe Courtney, and myself. And uh, we did so primarily with the idea of stepping forward and fixing... Uh, the Affordable Care Act and then providing an opportunity uh, for citizens to have a more affordable option while strengthening uh, the Affordable Care Act and providing uh, an opportunity for many of our citizens uh, to get uh, lower cost insurance and what is uh, generally regarded, I think, of the gold standard of insurance, and that's Medicare. And so uh, you may recall that we were only uh, a vote or two shy from uh, passing uh, Medicare at 55. Uh, But through the repeated town halls and outreach that I've done, so many individuals in the audience between 50 and 64 who find themselves in that transitional period uh, waiting to get on to Medicare, being laid off long before they turned 65 years of age and actuarially being at a point in their lives where they're frankly they're more expensive to their employer or in their individual or group plan so why not provide a common sense option where they would be able to buy into the medicare system we felt that this would accomplish a couple of things number one the medicare group would become younger. Number two, the group below 50, as well, ostensibly since you can stay on your parents' policy to age 26, the group from 27 to 49 would become very inexpensive because, actuarially, because of their age. And so we looked at this as being a common sense approach, and when we added both the idea that Medicare would be able to negotiate for volume discounts, as both uh, both the military is able to do, and as Medicaid, we thought that this would also help drive down the cost. And also by effectively adding into this uh, some teeth where we would be able to get after the inefficiency, the fraud, and, and abuse, which the Commonwealth Fund uh, suggests is around $50 billion annually. We think that we've come up with an alternative that would include corrections in the Affordable Care Act, that would create risk pools, risk corridors, that would have us uh, make sure that we have reinsurance in a sensible way and be more generous in terms of uh, how we look at contributions where people aren't falling off cliffs, that we had a common-sense proposal that actually uh, we think that if the republicans were ever allow us a hearing on this that there would be great interest in a common sense way to uh... help assist more americans uh, get the insurance that they desire and the coverage that they need
0: now just to be clear this isn't the same as what uh... what senator sanders is pushing the, the sort of medicare for all bill
4: that's correct it's not and i have nothing but respect and admiration for uh, Senator Sanders, et-, et cetera, but this is far different in terms of this is, in essence, this is a public option. In the House of Representatives, um, you know, we passed a house, we passed a public option. Fortunately, that was never taken up by the, uh, by the Senate and the bills that we passed. But we believe that uh, this uh, will provide people an opportunity, especially so many of them that are in this transitional period of their lives and looking out to how do I make it from whenever I leave my employment to Medicare and get the coverage that I need with something that's generally viewed as the gold standard of coverage, Medicare.
0: All right. Colleagues, who has a question? Margo.
1: As I'm sure you know, the cost of Medicare actually is, is relatively high compared with insurance in the individual insurance market. And I wondered if you had thought much about how the insurance would be priced for these new people who are buying coverage and whether it, in fact, it, you know, would be guaranteed to be affordable, as you've described.
4: Yes, we have. As, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I believe it's the Kaiser Family Foundation that uh, actually took a look at this and found out that for a 60-year-old, that if you were to you know, buy what is generally uh, considered the gold plan under the Affordable Care Act, that actually a Medicare buy-in would be, uh, as we're proposing it, would be forty percent less than the cost of what it would take to buy into the Affordable Care Act. So we think that actually this is uh, uh, more effective and less costly uh, than the affordable, uh, even the Affordable Care Act.
3: This is Stephanie at the Wall Street Journal. I had two questions for you. Um, the the two concerns I've heard about this would that is that it could potentially erode employer coverage and uh raise federal spending. I'm wondering what your your thought or rebuttal is to those concerns?
4: That's something that I, I don't know that I can fully answer it, et cetera, in, in its hypothetical sense, but uh I think just the opposite will occur. Uh and I've yet to be remain convinced by any facts or statistics that that would suggest otherwise. I mean, to me, this is a pretty logical uh, proposal. Uh, If you're allowing people uh, the opportunity to buy into, pay for uh, the Medicare that you're able to receive at age 65, that so many of them find themselves in this desperate situation, and also. When we look at the cost-benefit analysis and when we look at the cost of insuring people, that the age group of 50 to 64 is the most costly, that this would make eminent sense uh, to do so.
1: Uh, this is Joanne
2: Cannon from Politico. I have a, a question about the politics in the Democratic Party. Uh-huh. Um, you know, there is a, an increasingly visible divide between those who do back Senator Sanders' version of Medicare for All and those who might think it's a nice idea but not particularly practical. Is the and that could become a pretty um, potent primary season issue for your party in 2018? Is this the middle ground? Is everybody? Is this something that you can sort of say? You know, this is whether you're a single payer guy or a not single payer gal, um, this is a sort of common ground where we can agree and move forward rather than hitting each other on the head.
4: Well, yeah, I think that it's common sense and middle ground. But again, aspirationally, I think that you, you'll find many people who have signed on to our proposal or also signed on to John Conyers' bill or, you know, Bernie Sanders. I think people aspirationally, when I have public forums, et cetera. We have a number of people from uh, Indivisible who will show up, and all who are very ardent supporters of uh, single-payer or universal health care or Medicare for all, whatever name it comes over. When you go through the proposal, I think as uh, someone who was here when we passed the Affordable Care Act, uh, first we have an obligation to the people the more than 33 million people who would be impacted by the current Republican proposals and could lose their insurance. And while they may appreciate the aspiration, they want to see the effort and focus on making sure that we're actually fixing and strengthening the current insurance that they're receiving. 156 million Americans have private sector or employer-sponsored insurance currently as well. And so we don't view this as a a choice between one or the other because aspirationally, we think a lot of people uh, believe that universal health care, Medicare for all, uh, may be an optimal goal and certainly an aspiration. And we have nothing but respect for uh, Senator Sanders and a number of people who believe that. But You know, as I like to point out on the forums, uh, and um, you're all eminently aware of this, when we were in control and we had the president, the House of Representatives, and 60 members of the Senate, given the health of Tim Johnson or Senator Kennedy at the time, we couldn't even get a public option passed into law. And so... um, while I while I certainly appreciate the aspiration, and there was no stronger proponent of universal health care than Ted Kennedy, the practicality of what we face, uh, I think, demands. Uh, that we provide solutions.
0: Congressman, uh, it's Julie again. I'm going to let you go in a minute. But I have one last question. Sure. The um, the Senate uh, is working towards a, a bipartisan, a, a very small bipartisan package to try to stabilize the individual market for the moment, uh, if you will, or at least going into sure. imagine the next election. Is there any chance in the House that, that there could be any kind of a bipartisan anything on health care right now?
4: Well, one would hope so, but here we are today. We're just, I just came from a, from a hearing where, where, you know, while the Senate is focusing bipartisanly on trying to come up with solutions, we're in a hearing now where we're focused on the repeal of IPAP. This is as the children's health care bill expires, and community health-based clinics expired on September 30th. There is, there doesn't seem yet to be the fierce urgency of now, in the uh, House of Representatives that one would one would expect. But uh, I would also note that both uh, Debbie Stabenow and uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, and I understand that bipartisanly, Lindsey Graham is even looking at the, uh, they're looking at the uh, uh, Medicare buy-in approach at uh, 55 or 50. Uh, We think that 50 makes more sense. But uh, at any rate, we know that there's commerce in this vitality of of an idea that could uh, help us uh, and, more importantly, help the American people in terms of making health care more affordable and accessible.
0: Well, thank you very much, Congressman John Larson, Democrat of Connecticut. Thank you for joining us.
4: Happy to do so.
0: Well, let's wrap things up with a segment we call Extra Credit. That's where each of us recommends a story they read recently that they think everyone else should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the link to these pieces on the Kaiser Health News site, KHN.org. Joanne, what's your they extra should credit? Go last. Let them go. All right. Margo, what's your extra credit?
1: I wanted to mention a piece that two of my colleagues at the Upshot, Aaron Carroll and Austin Frack, did a couple of weeks ago, actually, uh, right around the time that the Bernie Sanders single-payer bill came out. And... They were responding to the very common talking point that, you know, every other country in the world does it better, that they have universal care. And I think that when politicians describe that, they seem to suggest that single-payer and that a kind of uniform approach to single payer is how everyone else does it. And the, and the U.S. is just left behind because it has this weird system that is unlike the rest of the world. And so what one of our editors asked Austin and Aaron to do was, could you set up like a NCAA style bracket tournament of all of the countries of the world? <laughs> and could we have a winner with the best healthcare system? And so uh, I really want to recommend their piece, which does this and actually allows you to play along at home at each, each stage of the competition. You can pick the one that you think is better. I think they assembled a panel of experts who had their opinion, but they didn't all agree. I mean, I think some of these calls are quite tough. But uh, aside from the kind of fun game element of picking which health system you like the best... I've been to the winner. Um, which I'm spo- not going to spoil it. Out- no, no,
0: no, we're not going to spoil it. <laughs> oh. But I've studied its healthcare system. But
1: the, the thing that I found really striking about their piece is it was a really great reminder to me that actually there is almost no uniformity in how other healthcare systems in the world are organized. That there is not this kind of template of one single payer system that everyone has that in fact there's just is a really wide variety and they're, and and kind of structurally financially in terms of what's covered single payer is not the dominant approach and it just it made me think that all of us as we enter this new phase of democratic politics in which there is a greater striving for universal care I think it would behoove all of us to uh, become more acquainted with these different uh, international systems and, and realize how they're the same and different and, and which models might be the best
3: model for the U.S.'s value an existing system, Stephanie. Right. Um, my uh, piece is one by Michael Hiltzik. I don't know, even know if I'm saying that correctly. Michael Yeah, okay. At the LA Times, it definitely kind of has a, a an edge to it, but it's really interesting. It looks at, it, in my book, um, kind of with um, HHS Secretary Tom Price gone, the fact that many of the actions that have been taken by HHS and the Trump administration um, when it comes to the ACA are likely to continue and here's why and here's what some of the elements have impact has already been such as looking at the waivers that were not approved in uh, two, two states and how that will increase insurance premiums. It's just a big broad look at kind of the state of play and and for people who want to kind of get a good sense about what has happened and what's likely to continue. It's, it's, a, it's a really good step back piece um, to look at
0: something that's been sort of undercovered. I will go next since Joanne wants to be last. Um, mine is a very short piece, but it's sort of the favorite piece I read this week with so much heavy news in it. We all loved um, from, it. <laughs> yeah, from Anna Edney. It was all
1: great pleasure. From <laughs> Anna Edney at
0: Bloomberg, my former colleague. Yeah. Uh, and the headline is, FDA warns bakery company, love is not an ingredient in granola. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure you can figure out what the story is, which is this, this: this bakery decided that in its ingredients list, it would include love, and the FDA warned them that... They are very serious about nutrition <laughs> labels and ingredients
3: <laughs> in particular,
0: and that love is not an allowable ingredient uh, in anything you bake. Even though I'm sure that many bakeries do do bake with love,
3: and so. it's a great story by my four, former colleague. Yeah, it's really Anna, fun. it's a fun She's story. Great. Yeah, yeah, it's a fun story. Okay, obviously, um,
2: you know, I don't always come in and talk about political reporting as the political health care. Executive editor, but today I'm going to because two reporters on my team, Rachna Pradhan and Dan Diamond. Uh, Rachna got the first tip about secretary then secretary Price's travel. The two of them did. Um, this was not an overnight. This was a detailed, in depth meticulous investigation, going through all sorts of records, um, really documented that first story, the $25,000 flight to, to Philadelphia. Philadelphia. <laughs> um, and, you know, culminating with the, the extra credit story I submitted from which was Friday, late Friday afternoon, Secretary Price resigned after we published, uh, I think it was five stories over 10 days. And then the follow up, there, there were a number of follow ups by many of my health reporters, White House Congress, I mean, the whole the whole, the whole, the
0: entirety of political right? But there was mm-hmm. a
2: particularly good story um, by Dan Andrew Restuccia and Josh Dossi, who we work closely with in the White House, who does a lot of health care with us, on why price went. Because we have seen, as we referred to earlier, we have seen uh, President Trump get into tiffs with other press, sec- <laughs> other other cabinet secretaries. We have seen other scandals that this administration has, you know, just teflon their way through. Uh, so they explored why through. Um, lack of personal connection, as well as the failure of repeal, why Secretary Price went and went fast.
0: And can I just say something, which is that, you know, a lot of reporters, a lot of news organizations would have stopped after the first story or after the second story. Um, And the idea that I I think, you know, sort of what happened here was that it was that continuing drip, drip, drip of different stories, of continuing to work the story through that that really sort of, you know, showed, showed. A difference to the to the taxpayers, basically. That's this is this was basically about story about taxpayer accountability. Right, and, and I also think right. it was. It,
1: I think what was so remarkable about the reporting over time is that it really punctured a lot of the nonsense that was originally put forward to defend the behavior. So, there are, of course you know there are reasons why you might imagine that a private jet. Travel might be appropriate, and I think that HHS responded to the first story with a kind of blanket statement that said, "You know, no other way to get to Philadelphia (laughs) than a twenty-five thousand-dollar charter flight, right?" But then, you know, we learned in the second story that there were times that uh, Secretary Price traveled where there was not a huge rush, even though they said it was because of time pressures. And then we learned later that, uh, in fact, it was not even necessarily exclusively for work. And I, I, I felt like as a reader that what the reporting did so well was really push back against some of the superficial explanations and really forced uh, Secretary Price and also the Trump administration to decide whether the justifications that were provided were adequate to explain the behavior.
2: Yes, and also on Thursday, I believe it was Thursday, when Price said that he would repay his Mm -hmm. seat. and you know he sort of thought it would be over and then like an hour later we had another story about <laughs> yeah. the military the, right. the use of military right. flights uh, for extensive in, overseas international. travel yeah. and that i think was the you know sealed the deal
0: all right well well congratulations to our colleagues um that is it for today thank you very much for listening if you enjoyed the podcast you can subscribe on iTunes Google Play or wherever you get your podcast we'd also appreciate it if you left us a review that will help other people find us too if you have comments you can email us at what the all one Word at KFF.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner.
3: at Joanne Kennan, at Steph Armour One, at Sanger Katz.
0: We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.